In our scripture reading this morning, we went back to that very familiar passage in Genesis chapter 22. And as I have been studying over the last couple of weeks on this, I am really reminded how much Genesis 22 is a foreshadowing of so much that happens in this last uh, account, if you will, of this section of Jesus' life. I was focusing on one thing. For instance, Isaac was given the wood to carry out to the altar for the sacrifice. And today we're going to see that Jesus carries the wooden cross on his back to the place of the sacrifice. Isaac was Abraham's one and only son. And Jesus, of course, was the one and only son of our God. So many things that picture. And as I was listening again to the reading of that passage this morning, I was reminded once again of one more, and that is, Isaac told those young men that were with him, we will go and worship and we will return. The promise that was there, even if for Isaac through the resurrection, he would return. Jesus went to the cross and yet he's promised to return. He came back from the grave, conquered death, and one day he's going to return for each and every one of us who have placed our faith and trust in him. Today we come to the account of the crucifixion. It's no light story. It's nothing that you kind of jump up and down and think about, wow, what a miracle this is. It's a very difficult thing to look at and to realize what Jesus experienced. So if you've got your Bibles or your iPads or your telephones or whatever else that you follow along with in this day and age, come to John chapter 19, starting at verse 17. So they took Jesus... And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others on either side and Jesus between them. As John writes, you kind of get a a summary, an overview of things as he gets started here. But we're going to experience today just a little bit the understanding of this term, this word crucifixion. Crucifixion has been called the most painful death sentence that a person could ever receive. History records that ancient methods of execution were aimed at giving the most excruciating amount of pain possible. As a matter of fact, I'm told that the Romans used to try different methods to see which one seemed to be the most painful. Stoning or flogging or whatever it might be, and they settled in on crucifixion. The purpose was twofold. Give the victim the worst pain possible so that they suffered. But secondly so that it would be a deterrent to others who observed the victim die. In those ancient days, the execution was a public spectacle, which became almost, if you will, a a carnival. Well, at least for those who carried out the sentence. Today, executions are private affairs with only limited witnesses, and they are planned as painless to carry out the judgment and as quickly as possible. The Romans prized four qualities in execution. Unrelenting agony, protracted death, 
public spectacle and utter humiliation. The ancient orator Cicero described crucifixion as the worst extreme of the tortures inflicted upon slaves. Now, I, I know that this is not an uplifting, encouraging start here to the message. But I want us to understand what our great God has done for us. I want us to understand how serious he is about his love for you and for me. Of his love for all of mankind. You see, God loved us. So much, very familiar verse, that he sent his one and only son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Unless Jesus Christ returns, each and every one of us is going to face what I have heard often called that last enemy of death. But you know, even though the means of dying are not something that we look forward to, the results of death for a believer are glorious. We sang about it this morning. We get to see Jesus' face as we close our eyes in this world and open our eyes in the next. That's why that's why not only the story that we're looking at, the account that we're looking at today, but also the truth of the resurrection, which will be shared in the next, well, in the next few weeks. We have a, a time set aside here for some other studies. But that's why these things are so important, because they remind us of what Jesus Christ, what God the Father, what the Godhead has provided for us in their sovereign plan. Let's go back, if we can, to the crucifixion. The victim who was to be crucified typically endured scourging before the crucifixion. There were times that that scourging brought death. Biblical scholar Merrill Unger tells us that there are instances that have been recorded where scourging lasted for as long as nine days. Pastor Chris talked about that a little bit last week, the whole idea of the flailing on the back, the empty, the plain, uh, uncovered back with uh, leather and pieces of bone or stone or metal tied into that strap. And that person, how they were just many times cut to pieces by this and how somebody could last nine days. Unbelievable for us us to understand but this this is what Jesus faced physically but the spiritual dimension of his suffering was unimaginable remember this it was not because of the high priest's hatred of Jesus not because of the decision of Pilate not because of the uh, allowing of things to go by Herod not because of the anger of the Jewish mobs. It was not for any of those reasons that Jesus Christ was on the cross. The Old Testament prophecies of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 show us that Jesus was carrying out God's sovereign plan for the redemption of mankind. And we can rejoice because of that. Now I want us to look this morning first at this lonely trail that Jesus took. None of the gospel accounts mention all of this procession to the place of the skull. They cover different parts of it or little pieces. We read just a little bit a moment ago that Jesus bore his cross and carried it to the place of the skull. The convicted was led by a group. There were actually, as I understand it, four soldiers, one at each corner as if the victim could get away. One at each corner and uh, the victim, or Jesus, in our case, right there in the middle of them. The group was led by one who served as commander. One account that I have read called him the exactor mortis. 
Some said it, it was the one who carried out the sentence. But it sounds to me a little bit more like the giver of death. Exactor mortis. The victim was forced to carry the cross or the cross beam, actually, that was carried up to the place of the skull. And then it was attached to the upright piece. We are told in this account and other places that Jesus had around his neck a, a, a sign. That sign was to delineate the crimes of the person who would go to the cross. Jesus, the sign on his neck said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now we've heard this. We've uh, read about it. Verse 21 in our account here says that chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write this, that he is king of the Jews, but rather that this man said, I am king of the Jews. No doubt Pilate was mocking Jesus, but also making fun of the Jews. And perhaps, as Pastor Chris mentioned last week, he was... uh, putting this down a little bit as a nod to one of the, any of the Roman gods, just in case this truly was a son of a god. John thought it important to place that here because Jesus was named as who he really was, king of the Jews. But he also could be called king of this world, as well as creator of this world. Jesus went out to the place of crucifixion by walking and carrying the cross beam. No doubt the events of the previous night's trials and the flogging had left him without much strength. And he was evidently unable to carry the beam. And Luke tells us, again, not all of the accounts share exactly the same thing. Luke tells us that the soldiers reached out to a man standing nearby, one Simon of Cyrene, who was forced to carry that beam for Jesus. Cyrene was an area down by the Alexandria area on northern Africa. This was no place that anyone would want to be, not northern Africa, but here at the scene of the crucifixion. Thrust into this crucifixion event, but Simon was placed there in this spot. The sign about Jesus' neck would later be placed above his head to show his crimes while he was on the cross. John's purpose is to point to Jesus' death for us. Luke tells us many followed him in the procession and were weeping. Mary and many other women and followers. And Luke also says, as he turned and he looked back and saw them, Jesus told the women to not weep for him, but for the many who would face judgment. Now, it's not specific there. Perhaps he's speaking of judgment on the land itself, on the souls of those who were calling for his death. Perhaps it was on so many others. But let me point out to you here that Jesus' concern as he was talking to those women was that they, he was concerned about the world. He was concerned about souls. And if it took his death on this cross... If it took his humiliation, if it took all of the things that he experienced, it didn't matter if through his death he could call us back to himself. You see, that's been the plan of the Bible from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, God came to dwell with man and sin separated that. And every passage throughout scripture is a picture of God reaching down to reestablish that relationship with man and mankind. He did it through the law. He did it through worship in the tabernacle. He did it through worship in the temple. He did it through the prophets. And then lastly, scripture tells us he sent his son. That's the purpose. That's why Jesus came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why that little baby was born and laid in a manger. It's why the angels notified the shepherds and the wise men. And that's why they came at that time. Because 
God's plan was to provide salvation. And that's why Satan did everything possible. From the seeking of the death of those little babies at his birth to the crucifixion that's here to stop him from accomplishing his goal. After the trials had been completed, Jesus was mocked and the painful attacks on his body had begun. Matthew again tells us that the soldiers, he gives a little bit more information, took him into the governor's quarters, placed the crown of thorns on his head and bowed and worshipped him. John talks about that in the beginning of chapter 19. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Jesus was beaten. He was mocked. He had his clothes taken off of him. They put a purple robe on him to, again, mock who he said or who what was said of him, that he was the king of the Jews. And then they made a a crown for him. But not one to place on his head to draw attention, but rather one with thorns in it that they shoved down on his head. And those thorns dug into the skin dug into his forehead. And that bleeding had already begun that would continue into the next day. They spat upon him. They pressed the thorns into his head. They bowed and called him the king of the Jews. But I'm reminded again that this bowing is going to be repeated one day. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, and it's recorded in other places throughout Scripture, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. I hope that you bow before your God regularly. I hope that you worship him, not just in a building like this, not as we sing only, but even at home. Quiet, in the quietness of your time with Him. That you worship Him and bow before Him. I think part of the excruciating pain of hell, and we don't know it all, will be the realization of the opportunities that a person had, and yet they rejected that salvation knowing that they had known what they needed to do, and yet they chose to not do it. Think about that. Think about the thinking of that over and over again for all of eternity. I don't think hell is just going to be physical pain. I think it's going to be emotional and mental and spiritual pain because of realizing What was not done. I wonder if some of these who mocked Jesus at this time have since that time in some attempt to acknowledge what they had missed in their lifetime have bowed and tried to offer worship. But can I say to you today that worship too late is not worship. It's acknowledgement of missed opportunity. John then says that they led him out. And that's where we started in chapter 19 and verse 17. We read read that once he got to the cross, they divided his garments and they cast lots for his clothing. Verses 23 and 24. Now, I want you to understand a little bit of what took place as 
Jesus and this group got to the mound, the place of the skull, the convicted person was laid down on that cross beam. Their arms were stretched out and either they were tied to that beam or in some cases, if there were nails or spikes available, those spikes were driven through their hands and feet to hold them onto that cross. For Jesus, we know because he later tells Thomas, come and place your finger in the holes that the nail, the nail holes in my hand. So Jesus was nailed to the cross. Probably that upright was laid down there, the cross beam set on top of it. Jesus laid then on top of that in his nails, the nails through, thrust through his hands to hold him onto that beam. And then his feet, one on top of the other, with a spike through them to hold those feet onto that upright. There's a little saddle in some instances. They, we are told that the person could rest on just slightly. But think about this as he's, these things are driven through his flesh and skin. He is dropped then into that hole on that, on that cross. And the shuddering shaking of that and the excruciating pain of what that did. The person would eventually die either from loss of blood or from choking to death because their chest would heave and give in as they tried to hold themselves up. As Jesus was hanging there, Physically in utter pain. Jesus looked down from the cross at those who were standing by them. In verse 20, the soldier did these things, 24, excuse me, and then going into 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Four women were named by John, his mother, Mary, his sister, whose name is not given here, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and our best understanding of that is that's probably Cleopas, who was one of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then Mary Magdalene. These were not hired mourners. Often, in that day and age, people would be hired to come in and to weep and to act as mourners to give a woeful sound that this person had died. But these were not mourners who were hired. These were people whose lives had been changed by the very Son of God. And now Jesus, as he looks down to them, speaks from the cross to those listening and to us as well. He gives his statement about this in verses 24 and 25. John speaks about the soldiers' activities, about Jesus' Jesus' clothing, and immediately goes to speaking about Mary, Jesus' mother. Mary and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. John never refers to himself in this gospel account by name. Often he speaks of the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's, as we understand and as things are put here, what John was doing. He was talking about he was taking care of Mary, the mother of Jesus. John had spoken back in chapter 13 at the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper, about Peter asking the disciple who was leaning back on Jesus. Again, a reference to John. And he says, woman, behold your son, and to the disciple, behold your mother. As Jesus prepared the disciples and made sure that they were ready for his leaving, now he cares for his mother. There's no mention of Joseph after early on in the accounts of Jesus' life. Evidently, he had died early on. 
And Jesus and his brothers made sure that Mary was well. But since his brothers were no doubt up in Capernaum, Jesus made sure that Mary was cared for. He was making sure that his all of his earthly responsibilities were covered. And he was reaching out in love for this one who had experienced so much in his behalf to see her who had at that time a birth that she really could not explain to bring God's Son into this world. Now, Jesus spoke from the cross seven different times. Seven times. They're not all recorded in one place. I remember, and perhaps some of you do, Good Friday services in the past when there would be series of messages on all seven of the sayings on the cross. And I remember sitting through them as a youngster and as a young teenager and hearing preachers go through that. But let me just touch on them real quickly. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. As he's there hanging on the cross, he looks down and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now that them, we don't know exactly who that is. Could be the soldiers, could be those uh, who were mocking him. It could be the Jewish leaders. We don't know. Perhaps it's all of mankind that he's talking about at this time. But the point here is this. Jesus on the cross in agony, his concern was for others. And he said, Father, forgive them. And then he said, they don't, they don't understand. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're involved in. They don't understand this battle that's been going uh, forth since before time began. Satan has tried to stop this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke goes on and gives the record of the account of the, uh, of the argument back and forth between the two thieves on either side of Jesus. One speaking out and saying, if you're the king uh, of, uh, of the Jews, well, why don't you come down from there and, and take us with you? And the other one saying, why? Why are, you, why are you speaking like this? He's here for no reason. We have done our crimes. And he turns and calls out to Jesus. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. The second thing he spoke. Confirming the salvation of this man on the cross. Then this statement, John chapter 19. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. That's statement number three. Matthew 27 seems to record the fourth statement when God calls out to God, if you will. Jesus from the cross calls out to his father and says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I think about that sometimes. Some theologians have written things. How amazing this is to imagine God forsaken by God. But I want us to understand this morning the importance of what he's saying here. Sin separates us from God. And unless we respond to what this Son of God has done for us, we have no hope and we will experience that separation from God for all eternity. Jesus on the cross was experiencing that separation As unsaved people will one day. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was not a question that he didn't have an answer for, but it was a realization of the separation from God that comes from sin. John chapter 19, verse 28, it says that Jesus later, right after this, says, I thirst. He says, it says thou that all things are now finished to fulfill scripture, and evidently he's talking about Psalm 69, 21. He says, I thirst. And they brought him some, some sour vinegar that they tried to put up to his lips. And then we come to chapter 19 and verse 30. And I, I, we need to camp here just for a moment today. Verse 30 says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he says, it is finished. And he bowed his head. And gave up his spirit. 
Now let me pause there because I want to touch on this one word here first, and that is bowed. He bowed his head. He bowed his head. The root word for this is the same root for the word back in Genesis chapter 22. When Abram says, we will go and worship. Worship, same root word as this word bowed. Same root. Same concept. Jesus hanging on the cross bowed his head, if you will, in worship. You say, in worship? What? How does worship fit in here? Let, let's understand what worship means. Worship means I am understanding God's plan to the best of my ability, and I am yielding myself to that. Worship is bowing our will to God's. Abraham did it in Genesis 22. Jesus was doing it here on the cross for the purpose of providing salvation for you and for me. Secondly, I want you to notice that little three-word phrase, it is finished. The word is tetelestai. I am no Greek uh, person who understands Greek, but uh, I read a lot about it and have over the years. That word tetelestai, it is finished is how it's translated, is placed many different times throughout history as they've looked back at the usage of words, even on uh, bills with payment made. And instead of uh, our understanding, it is finished, it's the understanding that says it is paid in full. Jesus on the cross says that the battle is over. Victory is won. God's justice, righteousness has been fulfilled and it is finished, paid in full. We don't have to pay for our sin today. Praise God for that. God expects us to acknowledge it. God expects us to give us, give that to Him and to say, yes, Lord, I have sinned and be purified from that. But it's been paid for already. One last thing I want you to see, and that's at the end of that verse. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. No one took Jesus' life. No one took that away from him. Jesus gave up his own spirit. He dismissed it, one of the other accounts says. He gave it back to him. In his last two comments, Jesus declares great, unbelievable truth for us. Our sins have been paid for, and he is the giver and taker of life. Whenever I say something like that, somebody often comes to me and says, Well, what about, what about the person who commits suicide? And I'm here to tell you that you cannot commit suicide unless it's your time to die. You can do what you want to. And there have been accounts of it where people's lives have been uh, attempted to be taken by themselves. But God stops that because it's not their time. We don't have any control over that. Sometime back, I had a book written by Senator Bill Frist. And I don't know if the name means anything to you. He was a heart surgeon from the University of Vanderbilt, a very strong believer in Jesus Christ, and he became a senator for two terms and became the head of the Senate, and wrote a, a, a book about his life and about his surgery and about all that had happened to him. And I remember reading the account, he said, he said, as we would work on a person's heart, either their own heart on the outside or somebody else's heart, that we were trans... Uh, transplanting in he said we could do everything just exactly right 
the machines would be ready, everything was hooked up, everything was set. And he said we had to step back and realize that it was now out of our hands. Because God, God is the one who starts that heart back up. He said it's not the electricity, it's not the, the machines, it's not those type of things. He said it's all in God's hands. And he said, I talked with my team about that. We understood that very clearly. And he said, when it happened, we praised God for what he had done. God is the giver and taker of life. Jesus, the very son of God, hanging on that cross, realized that all had been accomplished. That payment for sin had been made. Realized that everything that he had come for was finished. And he released his spirit. Luke tells us, I believe it's Luke who says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Jesus gave it up to the Father. It wasn't the high priest, it wasn't anybody else. Jesus gave it up to the Father. He was in control, even on the cross. Well, we come to the last part of here, this last act of the story, if you will. Verse 28, after this, knowing that all was now finished and to fulfill the scriptures, he said, I thirst. We came down and read that passage in verse 30 when he says, it is finished. And then you come to verse 31, and he says, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, a high day, that was, it was a Sabbath that preceded the Passover and it also preceded the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so that according to Deuteronomy chapter 21, no one could remain on the cross. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs these three victims on the crosses might be broken, that they might be taken away. They requested that the legs of all three men be broken, so that death would be hurried, and then they could be buried. This was an action taken to hasten the death of those on the cross during a crucifixion. The breaking of the legs caused a quickened death due to the loss of blood. The blood rushed to those legs and and out of the heart and out of other parts of the body caused an inability to breathe and that person then would die. The breaking of the legs was done on the thieves on either side of Jesus. And then look with me to verse 33. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. They saw that Jesus was already dead. Already dead. Skeptics have put forward the idea that Jesus only swooned on the cross. John carefully placed into his narrative that Jesus was already dead, thus crushing of the legs was not needed. Yet almost as if he knew what would be said, the questions that would be asked, he gave more information. But, he said... One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and out came blood and water. All kinds of discussions have come out about that. Number one, keep in mind that John was not a doctor. This was not Dr. Luke writing about it. He didn't understand how all of these things went, and probably at that time, they didn't understand the division of the body. This could have been the red corpuscle separating from the serum. Others view it symbolically as the blood flow that heals people's soul. I'm here to tell you that what John used it for and what he spoke about it and for us to understand is that Jesus was dead. The testimony of the eyewitness is given. Verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. The whole purpose of John's book, remember? These things have I written unto you that believe that you might know that you have eternal life. These things are written, these signs, the things that you've done. There could have been others, but these I put there for you 
so that you could be assured that you have eternal life. And here he says, I've included this so that you also might believe. And then he goes on in verse 36 and says, these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Gnostics and docetics would argue for Jesus not truly dying, but John truly, clearly explains what happened. And it fulfilled two specific prophecies of Scripture. Psalm 34 and 20, uh, 34, 20 and 22, 17 that talks about his death and being, being, uh, not broken as a sacrificial lamb. None of his bones would be broken. And in the future, Zechariah 12:10 says they would look on the one whom they had pierced. Now, all of this to help us understand what took place that day. You say, well, we know what took place. <laughs> We've heard it. We understand it. Let me sum it up for us today. Jesus walked out of the city on his way to Golgotha, the place of the skull. He walked out carrying his own cross. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin." Who knew no sin, that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. He was the sacrificial lamb who was slain for us. If you go back just a couple of verses in 2 Corinthians 5, we see that God made him, Jesus, sin for us. Verse 18 says that God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and then he gave unto us the ministry of reconciliation. There it is. Jesus walked out of that city carrying his cross so that he could die on Golgotha and take our punishment for sin. He fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy. He was the pure lamb without spot or sin. He took our punishment on the cross. And as Paul said, then we were given the ministry of reconciliation. Why do we go back to this story every Easter. Why do we come to this as we go through the book of John and and why why don't we just skip over it? After all, we all know it, right? We've all heard it. But this happened for us, not only for our salvation, but then for us to understand what our responsibility is. He's given to us. That's you and that's me. That's all of us. The ministry of reconciliation, of sharing with others and being a part of the net that draws people unto the Savior. Let's look this morning to the cross. Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews, just the first two verses there says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and he has just gone through in chapter 11 and told us out of all of the people who are there, all of the wonderful things that God has done for him, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now listen to this second verse. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter, the author and finisher, the alpha and omega of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Did you, did you hear that? Jesus in joy went to the cross because he realized that his suffering would provide your salvation. And that brought him joy. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our God, our Savior, Jesus, who went to this cross, who suffered this unbelievable death, is not on the cross today. He is not in the tomb today. He is seated in heaven 
at the right hand of God. And he's interceding for us. He's praying for you and for me. Look out with me, if you will, in your mind's eye from the cross. Put yourself where Jesus was, looking out at the people around him. And look back. I I picture it over there. There's a fisherman. A fisherman standing there. Somewhere in the shadows. Ashamed. Because earlier, earlier that day, he had denied that he even knew who this Jesus was. Yet he was marking down everything that happened. And he later remembered them. And he placed them in a letter to a bunch of believers, just like you and me, who were tempted, as maybe we are at times, to forsake the one who provided salvation for us. Peter wrote to this group of believers, living out in what we would call Turkey today, in the center of that country and he's writing to them because they were facing really difficult times and he wrote in his first letter to them chapter 2 for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you he says you're going through these things because your savior suffered for you Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, when somebody spoke against him, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten them. But he continued entrusting himself to him who justice judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter is writing here, is writing here from experience. He's writing here as a believer, as one who said to the Savior one day, we have nowhere else to go. You are Messiah. You are the Son of God. And yet... Just 24 hours before this picture that we've seen this morning, Jesus denied that same man. Peter's writing to this church, to these believers. He's writing to you and to me. And he says, listen, Jesus did all of this for you. He did all of it for me. And if you feel as if it's too much today and you... You might turn away from him if you feel as if you don't want to tell somebody that you're a a Christian. Peter says, I've been there. And he says, I've returned to the shepherd and overseer of my souls. And he says, "Ah, I want to encourage you to do that as well. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and for me. And if you don't know him as Savior, let me encourage you today, as we've thought through what he experienced for us,
Oh, listen to the Spirit's call in your heart. And open up your heart today to Him. Don't leave without talking to one of the people who will be standing at the front or at the doors that could help you. Oh, we'd love to help you know Christ as Savior today. If you're here today as a believer, one who's already trusted Christ as Savior, but you, like Peter and so many of us, have slipped back in your faith, you need to come back to the one who's done so much for you. I encourage you to come. In just a few moments as we sing, come, kneel here, pray. Someone will come and pray with you, encourage you. Your Savior. Your God. Is waiting, desiring that fellowship with you again. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you today, we thank you. Thank you for your plan, for your provision. Thank you for what you have done for each and every one of us. Lord, I thank you that, oh, so many years ago, you drew me unto yourself. Lord, I thank you that you've been faithful to me, even when there are times I've not been faithful to you. Lord, I pray that you would work in each one of our hearts, the needs that we have. Lord, if it's coming back to you, I pray that that might happen. If it's, if it's yielding to the call of the Spirit in our hearts, Lord, let that take place today. That's our heart. That's our prayer. That's our desire. Lord, minister in our hearts and souls today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.